0: According to His promise we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs chapter 13, Proverbs 13. We're looking at wealth and uh, the true wealth that we understand which is eternal life in Christ and the blessings we have to be saved and uh, the aspects there. I want to jump right back into it because we ran out of time last week and I think we're on the verge of some pretty neat things as it relates to Old Testament soteriology uh, aspects that uh, aren't taught as frequently, in fact are mistaught I think in a lot of ways. And uh, uh, critics of dispensationalism will accuse us of teaching two modes of salvation which is not true. We never have. Um, There were some things Schaefer wrote that were not expressed very well that you could maybe read that way and that's unfortunate. Uh, but uh, believers have always been saved by grace through faith. It's the only way to get saved. And uh, we, we understand that for what it is. And so every time we can find passages of Scripture that address that from the Old Testament, I find it very useful to, uh, to spotlight them and spend some time considering them and uh, approach them uh, in that way. And that's what we're going to do again here this morning. Before we do get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer that we can set aside our distractions, we can humble ourselves under the authority of God's truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for this morning and the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, we thank you for uh, all of your grace, all of your mercy, all of your love towards us day by day, moment by moment. Thank you, Father, that we have a building to meet in. Thank you that we're, uh, we're high and dry. Father, we're not flooded out. We do pray for our friends and family and loved ones that are still dealing with the, uh, the consequences of all that flooding and all that water. And that's in your hands as well. So Father, continue to provide and provide abundantly that your Son would be glorified. I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Alright. <coughs> we left off in main point 6 and, uh, which gets us down through verses 7 and 8. And uh, we had righteousness in uh, verses 5 and 6. And so that was under point 5, righteousness and wickedness. And we looked at the uh, poetry of those verses. And then when we got to verses 7 and 8, I have the right slide here. There we go. We have two verses here in verse 7 and verse 8 that deal with wealth, that deal with money. In fact, there'll be another one coming up also in verse 11 uh, you 'll notice wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it and so in verse eleven, we have other financial uh, aspects that come up there uh verse eleven though is not connected to verses seven and eight in the in the meantime verses nine ten and eleven or verses nine and ten go into different aspects and it 's not poetically it 's not linked uh, the way that uh, verses seven and eight are so i 'm going to handle that separately when we get there but here uh, for this morning, though, looking at verses 7 and 8, there is one who pretends to be rich but has nothing. Another pretends to be poor but has great wealth. Uh, then verse 8, the ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but the poor hears no rebuke. All right, so these are the two verses we want to handle as a unit. And these are the verses that, that come together uh, in this way. And at first glance, they appear to be, uh, we could just limit it to the to the first glance of these verses, and it seems as if uh, on a surface level we're just talking about earthly money. It just seems like, you know, there's, there are some rich people out there that don't look very rich and they're kind of faking it. They seem kind of poor. There's also some very poor people out there uh, that, uh, that they're faking it too as far as that goes. So, uh, But I think there's so much more here to be read out of these passages and in particular as it connects to what true wealth actually is. And that's what I want to spend today dealing with. So again, that's verses 7 and 8. One who pretends to be rich but has nothing. So he's a total fraud. He's living on debt, living on credit cards. Uh, The world thinks he's the richest guy in town but he's the poorest guy around. He's about to go to prison for for bank fraud and whatever else because he can't pay his debts. Um, Then another pretends to be poor but has great wealth. And uh, so, yeah, you can preach it like that and say, okay, appearances can be deceiving. Don't judge a book by its cover. Uh, you know, you can't tell just by looking at somebody and things like that. But I think there's there's actually larger points being made here. And so I spelled it out this way in the in the outline. In terms of wealth, there is that which can be seen. All right, and we get that. But then there there is also the appearances which can be misleading. And then ultimately, there is the true wealth. And the true wealth is the eternal life God provides. And so whatever else you want to talk about and every other form of wealth, and there's, there's financial wealth, there's relationship wealth, it could be wealthy with friends and family, there's all kinds of wealth that's out there, but the true wealth is the eternal life that God provides. And ultimately uh, I think that's the main point that's being uh, driven home here in verse 8, the ransom of a man's life is his wealth. And so who did that? Who paid that ransom? And, 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 and obviously God did. We have eternal life. That is our wealth. And uh, if you have that then uh, never mind being poor, we have eternal life in Christ. So uh, there it is. But the poor hears no rebuke. Does that seem odd? Uh, does it seem to be disconnected from uh, the ransom of a man's life as his wealth? Well go back to verse 1 because that's how this whole chapter began. The wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. And that parallelism there, to to reuse that line from verse 1, not listening to rebuke, and to bring it down here into verse 8, I think that's the biggest clue of all. I think that's the nature of of, uh, Solomon or whoever compiled these proverbs in this order, specifically linked them in this order and put verse 8 that way, with the parallels there from verse 1, to show us that the real contrast here is the idea of being saved or not being saved. Are you listening to the Word of God? Will you listen to what God says? And if so, then you respond to God's promise, you believe in God for eternal life, and you're the wealthiest guy around. If you ignore what God says, if you ignore His gospel, if you ignore His promise, then uh, you're the scoffer that listens to no rebuke, uh, and you are poor. You are literally poor. So there's a parallel there between the scoffer in verse 1 and the poor in verse 8, not hearing the rebuke or not listening to the rebuke. All right. Now, last week we looked at the uh, apparent riches, pretending to be rich, and uh, the folks that are doing that, or the apparent riches. Understand the money of this life comes and goes. And uh, sometimes, even when we think it's safe, it's gone. It's not as safe as we thought it was. It's called the uncertainty of riches in 1 Timothy 6.17. They can also be delusional. Earthly wealth can be delusional, which we read in Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea. They thought that they were rich and wealthy, had need of nothing. And uh, yet the reality was they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so um, uh, if if your God is the almighty dollar, then uh, you're in trouble, okay? Because the dollar uh, is sometimes inflationary, sometimes deflationary. And uh, and uh, <laughs> different things there. All right, the individual soul is more valuable than the entire world, and that's a context Jesus said that in Matthew sixteen twenty six. Let me reread that in case you've forgotten or lost track of what we dealt with last week. Matthew sixteen twenty six. What can a man give? And uh, the inability of humanity. The fact is that a single human soul is worth more than the entire world. And uh, let alone billions of human souls, let alone the the total work of salvation that our Savior accomplished on the cross. Even one. Even one unbeliever would have required the same death of Christ on the cross that uh, all of humanity required. So Matthew 16, this is in the the, the context here where uh, blessed are you and the great uh, confession that Peter makes um, in any event. I am in the wrong page. Let me find my spot. Matthew 16 26. There it is. Alright, so uh, the context that starts in verse 24 as Jesus said to His disciples, "...if anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me." This is what is expected of us as disciples. Are we willing to "...to carry our cross. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it." Alright? And here's where we understand the cost of discipleship and how we live out our faith and the nature of sozo and the nature of saving and salvation that is, is, is experiential, is dealing with the experiential outworking of our faith. How we live our Christian walk. "...for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul?" What kind of soul damage do we do when we're not walking in fellowship, when we're not walking in the light? What's the price that we're paying? What's the cost to our soul uh, in, in prolonged darkness when we're not living out the Word of God and glorifying Jesus Christ? When uh, instead of picking up our cross we throw it down and say, no thanks. I don't, uh, I don't like that. I don't want that. I, don't, I, I shouldn't have to suffer like that. You know, I'm better than that. Why do I have to go through something like that? I don't deserve that. And so we disagree with our testing. We disagree with our undeserved suffering. We disagree with what the Father designed. Because the Father assigned us that test. Why do we think we're smarter than Him? He thinks we need it. We don't like it. (laughs) So we think, no, I don't need that. But we do. That's called taking up your cross and following. And if you don't, you're actually paying a price. The cost that you pay is the damage to your soul. And so this is what happens when you want to sozo your suke. When, uh, when you're trying to save your soul. You're trying to rescue your soul from uh, what uh, an unpleasant circumstance that your humanity would prefer not to go through. And instead of a rescue, you're not really rescuing anything. You're just dodging the will of God. And so instead of rescuing, or sozo, saving, you're actually losing. And, uh, and we get that. All right. For what will a profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's what we're talking about. Now, anytime we're talking about money, what's money? Is money wealth? Don't confuse money with wealth. And what are we doing with money? What are we doing as we exchange currency for something? And a voluntary exchange. And I give you, you know, five bucks and you give me a cheeseburger, all right? And we're happy. Because you're selling the cheeseburgers and you're happy to have the five bucks and I'm eating the cheeseburgers and I'm happy to spend the five bucks. And so it's a win-win for both parties. right? It's a free exchange. And uh, that's the nature of money. And we want to understand that. And as we, as we exchange the money voluntarily, we're actually increasing our wealth. I am better for, uh, in, my, in my view. I am better for what I have obtained. And uh, the other person is better for what he has obtained. And so it's a win-win. Both are increasing. And this is what we want to understand. Now when our soul is in the picture, who, who, who buys that? <laughs> okay, uh, Positionally and experientially. Okay, We want to look at it both ways. Positionally, nobody can. You and I cannot buy our own way to heaven. We cannot earn eternal life. We cannot purchase our soul. And that's what we don't want to lose sight on here. Anyway, so... Um, it's not wrong to think of the soul in an economic way, to use money or to use wealth, to use uh, uh, anything as a, as a term that to describe the soul. Because the Bible does that. And to put a price on a soul, the Bible says the whole world can't buy even one soul. So how, how do you think you can earn eternal life, right? But God did. And we were redeemed, with, not with silver or gold, but with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the price that the Father accepted for our redemption all right uh, secondly, under point B, apparent poverty may hide true wealth, apparent poverty may hide true wealth, and uh, not only I think uh, on the surface level that yeah there's there are wealthy people that can dress modestly that can uh, live in a in a modest home and can can uh, drive a, a you know a beat up old pickup truck, and I think didn't Sam Walton drive an old beat up pickup truck for Years and years, even though he was a billionaire, you know, and whatever um I mean yeah, you can do that, and that's uh that's that's we get that, but on a on a on a deeper level and and on maybe a, a more spiritual basis, we can understand that if this proverb is actually contrasting the um, maybe our biggest hang up in verse seven is the word pretends because pretends is is likely not the best way to render the Hebrew on that uh where there's an appearance of, of of being poor, but he has great wealth. Okay. And on that basis, I think we've got a proverb here, a proverb here, that is very much in line with uh First Corinthians and Second Corinthians, and we talk about where uh Christ for uh our sake, though he was rich, he became poor. That you and I, though we are poor, we can make many rich, right? And we understand that we have the juxtaposition of earthly wealth with heavenly wealth. And you might be the poorest guy in town, but you are wealthy in spiritual things uh, as a as a steward of the word of God. And so uh, you know you got the widow of in Luke 21. They put two little lepta coins in the in the treasury, and Jesus said that she gave more than all those rich guys put together. And uh, so if you understand the the juxtaposition between earthly wealth and spiritual wealth, then sure, you could have an apparent poverty and a true wealth that, that staggers the imagination. And we have that as well. All right, so that brings us then to point C, which is really, I think, the meat of what we're looking at here in terms of eternal life. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth. The ransom of a man's soul. Now I'm taking that phrase, and I'm making that equal to purchasing our salvation, purchasing our redemption. We we have been ransomed, and the Bible says that, that we have been ransomed, not with gold and silver and gold, the such perishable things, as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we have been ransomed. We have been redeemed, ransomed, purchased, all these terms are used. And so uh, in that context then, the ransom of a man's life is or his soul, nefesh in the Hebrew, the ransom of a man's soul is his wealth. And if you don't think you're wealthy, just remind yourself, your soul has been ransomed and uh, then you can relax and say okay I'm wealthy. <laughs> I am absolutely wealthy. Do I do I realize what the father spent to ransom me, you know? Uh it's uh it's it's humbling. It's uh it's flattering, it's humbling, it's it's sometimes it's unthinkable. It just it boggles my mind that he would do that for me cuz I'm I'm vile. I'm a sinner. Why would he send his son to give me eternal life? And yet he did. So if, if we can read this verse this way, and if there are other passages of scripture that support that, then there's, uh, there's even better reasons to read this verse this way. And I think it becomes overwhelming that yes, the whole tenor of scripture does, uh, speak to that truth. So let's start with Psalm 49 and, uh, and work our way through these. Psalm 49. And you'll see in, in each of these what I'm talking about. We'll see the, uh, the aspects here that take uh, financial terms, and uh, really are speaking to eternal life. Starting in uh, Psalm forty-nine, verses six through nine. All right, the um, Psalm forty-nine is a Psalm of the Sons of Korah, and there's a lot of things here too that, in the early verses, I'm going to kind of let go for the morning. Um, verse 5 says why should I fear in the days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me and uh, realizing that believers of every generation have always dealt with this that uh, if you're saved if you name the name of Christ you're going to come into conflict there's going to be those that uh, don't have your world view and even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches and so uh, whoever the author of this psalm was, was dealing with that. I think we all do. You're living the Word of God, you're born again, you're conducting your life according to the Scriptures, and here's these unbelievers, here's these mockers. And some of them are very wealthy in, uh, in their life of unbelief. And, uh, and that can become a test. It becomes a big challenge. Well, there he is boasting. And what, what does his money bail him out of? What, kind of, what can his money rescue him from? Well, one thing his money can't do is get him saved. And and so we see this here, um, verse 6 again, even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally that he should not undergo decay decay. All right? So you take the wealthiest guy on earth, and yet can he buy his soul? Can he buy his own eternal life? Can he keep himself from decaying? <laughs> and, uh, and there it is. You know, wouldn't it be fun if we could insert that verse at the bottom of TV commercials? <laughs> you know) Like uh, those lawyer announcements they always put at the end of commercials, they say, you know, warning, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, because we're constantly being sold products, you know, uh, skincare or, or health products or vitamins or, I mean, all that. We're constantly being sold products, and I like to have a little disclaimer at the end saying, um, you know, if you're trying to, uh, uh, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. <laughs> God alone provides for that, not uh, not these products. All right, you can try to you can mask you can mask the wrinkles, <laughs> you can uh, you can cover up uh, you know the appearance of age. But guess what? We're all getting older, and that uh, that it just doesn't stop. Anyway, I'm not going to succeed in putting Psalm 49:9 at the end of different television commercials, but I would like to, if I could. But the redemption of his soul is costly. All right? So here we have again, just like in Proverbs, we've got financial terms. We have uh, redemption, or in Proverbs it's ransom. But the, uh, the, the commodity, that, that which is being uh, purchased and obtained, is the soul, is the nephesh of a human being. Just one. Just one human being. Can you lay down your life for your brother? Can you redeem your brother's soul? And uh, we can't. And uh, you could try forever... And even if he had, uh, that he should live on eternally, uh, that he should not undergo decay, we can't buy it. None of us can. There's nothing we can do to purchase it, to earn it, to deserve it. Uh, The whole world can't buy one soul, let alone all the souls of every human being that need to be redeemed. And there it is. All right, how about Psalm... uh, uh, Let's see, is there more to that? There's more here in Psalm 49. It goes on, verse 10 says, "...for he sees that even wise men die..." the stupid and the senseless alike perish and uh, leave their wealth to others. Uh, you know, so you can get kind of depressed. You can kind of, you know, if you don't have Christ, if you don't have uh, the Scriptures and the Word of God, then, uh, then yeah, that's a, kind of a depressing thing. Getting old is kind of a bummer. Um, you know, the outer man perishes but the inner man is renewed day by day. That's our blessing. Well what happens if the inner man's not being renewed day by day? What happens if you're not in the Word of God? What happens if you're not getting the encouragement of Scriptures? Well then you've got this decaying older man that's just dying, dying, dying and there's no divine provision to, uh, to provide for that. So then you get all depressed and then you think well what point is there? What difference does it make? I'm going to die, the wise man's going to die, the stupid man's going to die, and what's the difference? Leaving their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are Forever. They're dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. Ah, there we go. Here's a way I can be eternal. I'm going to leave my name everywhere I can. I'm going to leave my name. I'm going to have, uh, am going to have my name on a town. My name's going to be on a country. My name's going to be on a, on a, on a monument. My name's going to be on a hospital. Okay. And so uh, I'm going to have a park named after me or whatever. And so if you're really famous and really rich and really whatever, you can have your name on all kinds of stuff. Say, how long does that last? Is that a form of eternal life? Can you leave yourself a legacy by leaving your name scattered everywhere? Well, you know, until another generation comes along that decides to tear your statues down, right? Decides to rename your schools, decides to rename your hospitals and your parks and, and everything, and then they start scrubbing your name from all of history, so, so much for your, uh, <laughs> your eternal life, okay? If that's what you were doing to obtain immortality. So uh, yeah. But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. And so so much for pomp. Anyway so that's Psalm 49. There's a lot more there. We'll leave that. Uh, How about Psalm 112? Psalm 112 and verse 3. Praise the Lord, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in His house, and His righteousness endures forever. So do you think this verse is all about the secular wealth? You think this this passage is all about temporal life? I don't think so. That uh, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and we're talking about the born again life. We're talking about being born again and and fearing the Lord and and uh, descendants, not just physical offspring that you happen to procreate and have children, but what right about those that you that become your children in the Lord that you lead to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Can we read this passage on an evangelistic basis as well? Again, putting ourselves back, I illustrated this a couple weeks ago. The idea that if I'm a if I'm a, a Jewish person in the Old Testament, I've got Hebrew Scriptures and I'm trying to raise up my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord because I'm told to do that in Proverbs and so forth, well then how do I do that? How do I lead my children to a saving knowledge of, of Jesus Christ? Okay. Well, Old Testament to a saving knowledge of the coming Messiah. I don't know the name Jesus yet. Okay. But I do know that the seed of the woman has been promised. And I do know that Messiah is coming. And I do know that that Messiah, that son of Abraham, son of David, Okay, if I'm after the Davidic Covenant, if I'm after the book of Isaiah, I know it's going to be a virgin-born son of David. If I'm after the prophet Micah, I know that it's going to be a virgin-born son of David born in Bethlehem. All right. So depending on where I'm living in the Old Testament, I've got more scriptures to work with, or I've got less scriptures to work with, it depends. But if I'm an Old Testament believer and I'm trying to lead my child to salvation, or or an unbeliever, anybody, uh, to salvation, what verses do I use? I can't use John 3.16, I can't use Romans 3.23, I can't use Acts 16.31. All my favorite evangelism verses are all in the New Testament. Can't use those. So I've got to go back to the Old Testament and say, All right, what verses am I using? What passages am I using? And in fact, I should be using Isaiah, I no? don't see Isaiah 55, and that's not even on my slide. Goodness, how did I leave that off? Um, we talk about wealth. We talk about buying things without spending money. How do you buy something without spending money? Well, somebody else spends money. Okay, You buy, he pays, because the cost was borne by somebody besides you. But you still go and make the purchase. That's important. Anyway, so again, let's look at Psalm 112, and and try to think beyond the physical, beyond the temporal life, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. This is, this is a believer that's in the Word of God, that's living as a, as a disciple in the Word of God. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. Is that secular? Am I guaranteed that, that if I'm a believer and I'm in the Word of God that my children are going to be rich and famous and powerful, mighty in the earth? Well, if I if I if I take it that way, then I think I set myself up for some disappointment. Okay, you know, I'm not going to illustrate. It gets too personal with my own children, one of which is sitting here in the room. Okay, so if uh, you know if my children aren't mighty in the earth, is God, is he failing in this promise? You know, see. Uh, and mighty on the earth—is that mighty in secular or mighty in spiritual truth? Okay. Anyway, now I believe I take this all spiritual. I take this as as a, as children that are powerful in the Word of God because they're they've been steeped in it since since the nursery. <laughs> they've been learning Bible verses since they've been you know just little guys, and they are mighty. The generation of the upright will be blessed. And that's, uh, so I'm, I tell you, I'm thankful for that. Uh, my dad did not grow up in a Christian home. My mom, eh, kind of, they were nominally Lutheran, but she didn't get, understand the gospel until she was 13. And what a blessing to have parents that are saved, that are in the Word of God, that are training their children up in the Word of God. That's the generation of the upright, the descendants of those that fear the Lord. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. So again, I think this is a passage that speaks of the soul. it speaks of wealth, and it shows that the fact that we 've been ransomed is our wealth that is our heritage, that is our estate and uh, If you think that the descendants of Sam Walton uh, you know are wealthy, okay and they are <laughs> all those branches and branches of Walton's out there that are billionaires, all of them but Think about our estate in Christ and what do we have? Because we have been ransomed and the one that ransomed us has made us fellow heirs with the heir of all things. All right, how about some earlier passages in Proverbs, even before we get to Proverbs 13? I think we've hit this a couple of times already, Proverbs 3 and Proverbs 8. So let's look at these again and try to remember. Proverbs 3.16. And so, um, backing up to verse 13, how blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. We want to instill a hunger for the word of God with uh, our children and the youngest of generations, or in the, in the youngest of ages. For her profit is better than the profit of silver, her gain is better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire compares with her. That's why you can be, in earthly terms, poor as a church mouse, but in spiritual terms, as wealthy as anything. Because uh, you've accumulated for yourself the doctrine from the Word of God. It's in your soul. Long life is in her right hand. Her left hand are riches and honor. And so here's life connected with the wealth from the Word of God and uh, and where else do we obtain this life where else do we obtain this wealth if uh, if our uh, redemption is our salvation that's how i'm using it this way the ransom of man's soul (parentheses salvation the fact that you're saved is uh, is your wealth okay well what did i learn about that how did i learn about that salvation how did i accept the gospel it came from the scriptures okay And without the Scriptures, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Without the Scriptures, how does anybody get saved? All right. Long life is in her right hand, her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. And happy are all who hold her fast. You know, God uh, did away with the original tree of life wouldn't let Adam and Eve go back in there. And I think with Noah's flood completely obliterated the geography of, of the earth. So uh, you the know, tree of life didn't have to be guarded after that. Um, but what has He given? He's given us the Scriptures. He's given us truth. And so any generation then can respond to the Scriptures, can respond to the promise of eternal life. We can take hold of the Scriptures, the promise of eternal life, believing in, the, in, uh, in Christ, See. And that's, uh, again, we're talking from an Old Testament standpoint here, looking forward to a coming Christ. You and I look back to the Christ who came. Proverbs 8.18 Proverbs 8.18 Remember this is the uh, wisdom personified here. I wisdom dwell with prudence, I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. That's why I think mighty in the earth is not secular. I think it's, it's spiritual. It's mighty in the Scriptures. Mighty in God's wisdom. By me kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles all who judge rightly. Remember this? And then he says I love those who love me and those who diligently seek me will find me. We talked about this in Proverbs 8. We talked about this as a soteriological emphasis. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold. My yield better than choice silver. All right, I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice. So it's not only is it soteriological that you come to Jesus, you seek Him, you find Him. Now that you're with Him, there is a corresponding walk. You don't just come to, eat, to Jesus and end of story, you come to Jesus and then you walk with Jesus. That's the point. To endow those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasuries. So yeah, take it from verse 18 all the way down to uh, verse 21 or even back up to verse 17 about seeking and finding. And, uh, and you'll notice that there, that we have the redemption of the soul in a financial context. How about Jeremiah 9? Jeremiah 9 verses 23 and 24. I don't know that I stressed this in our Jeremiah series. It was such a roller coaster trying to cover a whole chapter in a Sunday that uh, you kind of hit the big ideas and, and, uh, and move on to the next one. Uh, but in Jeremiah chapter 9 there's some interesting things here. Verses 23 and 24. Maybe I might use this verse to talk to my child, to talk to my friend, to talk to somebody that was trusting in something other than Messiah for eternal life. Thus says the Lord, "...let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me." Now take this passage soteriologically, take this in terms of salvation. One definition of eternal life is that they know me, and, uh, that they know the Father and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So hear that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. If you know the Lord, that's, that's an expression we use, and it's an expression the Bible uses for, to, to communicate the reality that you have eternal life. You know the Lord. We use that expression all the time. It's biblical. See, In fact, I kind of like it better than just saying, are you a Christian? Because sometimes I get goofy answers. Sometimes people think they are and, and they don't know the first thing about trusting in Christ for eternal life. So, oh, do you know the Lord? Starts a conversation. How well do you know the Lord? When did you come to know the Lord? You, know, you get different expressions there that, that speak to our salvation status. We're born again. And this, this was known in the Old Testament. Absolutely this was known in the Old Testament. And Jesus was absolutely horrified that Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, could not grasp his you must be born again message of John chapter 3. It was just mind-boggling to the Lord that, that Nicodemus was so clueless when he said, you must be born again, and all he could think about was in secular life, crawling back into his mother's womb. How does that happen? So, uh, again, don't boast of his wisdom. He's legitimately wise. He has wisdom. We're not doubting that he's wise, because he is a wise man, but he can't boast of his wisdom. And the mighty man, he is legitimately mighty, but he cannot boast in his might. And the rich man, we're not saying he's poor; he truly has earthly wealth, but he can't boast in that, because none of that uh, is is eternal. None of that is going to is is worth the redemption of his soul. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. And of all the things they were looking for, you know, yes, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, but. There's more and more and more that gets revealed throughout the progressive revelation of Scripture as the Old Testament was unfolded. Not only in who the Messiah was going to be, but what His character was, what He demanded, what His coming kingdom was going to be all about. Which is why when the herald starts preaching the kingdom, when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what goes with that is a repentance imperative. (laughs) You guys are not a righteous people. And this kingdom is a righteous kingdom. And so uh, when, when John the Baptist starts preaching the kingdom, what goes with that is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That when the Messiah arrives He's going to be a Messiah of righteousness. He's going to be a Messiah of justice. That, uh, that's why He's given that, that scepter to rule with. Because the, the rod of your kingdom is the rod of righteousness. You hate lawlessness. You hate wickedness. You hate, as it says here, I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. That's why he gives the scepter to his Messiah on that basis. Uh, I left off Isaiah 55, so let me grab it on my way to the New Testament. I love it a lot, I use it a lot. Why did I uh, not put it on the slide? Isaiah 55, it's easy to find and it starts with a whole <laughs> which I like, it just grabs the attention when you shout "Ho!" Isaiah fifty-five, and I would use this passage if I was a, uh, if I was a dispensation of Israel evangelist. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You think we're talking about secular thirst here? We're talking about temporal life, human thirst. No. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money. Come, buy, and eat. Well, if I don't have any money, I can't buy anything. How does that work? We have a passage here that's describing the contrast between the earthly and the heavenly, temporal and eternal. Come, buy. You don't have money? That's not a problem. The price has been paid. Someone else has borne the cost. So come, buy, uh, and eat. Buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. See, this is how can he believe if he he doesn't hear? How can he hear if if it's not being preached, right? You've got to hear the gospel. You've got to hear and listen. And you've got to respond. It's not just hearing it. There's a lot of people that have heard it There's a lot of people that have understood it and they know flat out, yep, Jesus died on the cross. Yep, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And they don't accept it. They don't trust in Christ for eternal life. Even though the information, they acknowledge the information. So listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. And so the, the uh, guarantee of our eternal life is spoken of here in terms of a covenant, in terms of an everlasting. How do I lose that? For me to lose my salvation means God would have to break a covenant. When's He ever done that? Okay? The God who could lie, the God who could break a covenant is, uh, is not the God of, of the Bible. It's not the God that could pro- provide our salvation in the first place. Anyway, so we got a lot of uh, aspects there in Isaiah 55 verses 1-3 through 3, that I think likewise speak to the fact that uh, we can't afford it. We can't buy it if we wanted to. That it's a different kind of wealth that, uh, that's available to us. Finally then 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 8 and 19. 1 Peter, the New Testament. Now yes, it's a New Testament passage, but I think it's so harmonious with all these other passages we've been seeing that it serves to bolster the uh, case that the Old Testament has been making. 1 Peter 1 verse 8 and verse 19. It's not really a dispensational issue anyway when we're talking about the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world that this has always been the plan to purchase our eternal life. All right. Oh, there's so much here. First Peter one three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we sing His praises. The Father is so blessed, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you. Understand that. We can throw away rewards but our inheritance is not to be lost. It cannot be lost. Our position in Christ contains the inheritance in Christ that uh, nothing we can do can diminish it or throw it away. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Remember three different ways that salvation is used. Here's the third and final one. In this you greatly rejoice... Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, and here we have it in time, while we're saved while we're waiting for heaven, trials, okay? It's not a bed of roses; it was never designed to be. If someone told you it was supposed to be, they lied to you, and I'm sorry for that, you know whoever that was, they sold you a bill of goods. You know, just get Jesus, and your marriage will be better. Just get Jesus, and your family will be happy. Just get saved, and all of uh, you know all of your problems go away. That's a lie from the pit of hell. If you start growing in the Word of God, you're going to start coming under attack. Satan's doesn't like that. You're going to have trials, and yes, if necessary, and it is, you will have been distressed by various trials, so that purpose clause, so that the proof of your faith. The demonstration, the proof, unbelievers are watching you, younger believers are watching you, your kids are watching you. More precious than gold which is perishable, (laughs) even though tested by fire. Isn't that great? May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now one takeaway from that verse is to recognize that gold is perishable. This world calls it precious. It's a precious metal. No, it's a perishable metal. (laughs) And uh, it's going to perish along with uh, the silver, along with the platinum, along with everything when the whole heaven and earth are destroyed by fire and all the elements are, are consumed by intense heat. What happens to gold after that? Alright. We'll talk about what's precious. What's more precious than that? Us and our redemption. So We get down, there's other things in the middle of this, but... Uh, verse 17, if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. So you're enduring the suffering, the proof of your faith is being demonstrated, you're bearing fruit, Um, all this is is happening. Uh, Conducting ourselves in fear during the time of your stay on the earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold "...from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers." Yes. Futile. <laughs> a life without Christ. A life without the Word of God. Futile. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And if you want to dispute that, just read Ecclesiastes. That's why it's in our Bible. "...we were not redeemed with perishable things." What were we redeemed by? "...with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ." For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This is not a plan B. When God created volitional beings, angels and humans alike, when God created volitional beings He knew full well the consequences would be a fall. An angelic fall and a human fall. And in perfect agreement with the Father's plan, the Son and the Holy Spirit were in agreement, came the, uh, the creation of volitional beings and came the uh, the god man who would go to the cross as a kinsman redeemer that was that was a price he paid up front he was willing to pay that price and he paid that price when he decided to create the way that he created foreknown before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you all right so we have it here. Not with uh, silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished. When you think about what is precious, when you think about the scale of things, what defines wealth? What defines cost? What defines value? And uh, <laughs> there's a lot of theories out there, there's a lot of uh, economic uh, philosophies in this world, and uh, some are better and some are worse and some are wonderful and some are just flat out stupid. Uh, They seem to be very popular (laughs) for all their stupidity. Uh, But, biblically speaking, God Himself has defined economics for us. In His Word of God, in His very actions, God Himself has defined what has value. And the things that have been revealed in in Scripture reveal the, the cost-benefit reveal the, the value of what is freely exchanged for something else. All right? When it's not forced, when it's not coerced, it has value. When it's freely given, it has value. See, God loves the cheerful giver. He hates, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves the cheerful giver. The design in God's plan is for it to have value, for it to have true value it has to be freely given on on the part of the one that is exchanging something for something else. And then comes the question of price or cost. Well, what price do you put to that? What is it worth? What is the cost? Well, what is the other person willing to pay? See? And because It might only be worth this to one person, but it might be worth something else to another person. So who do you sell it to? (laughs) Don't you sell it to the one that's willing to pay the most? If you've got something for sale, you know, I'm going to sell something to you for X amount, but this other guy comes along, he's going to pay double. Oh, okay. I like that. (laughs) It's worth more to them than it is to you. Okay. All right. No one's putting a gun to his head or making him pay that price. It's a voluntary free will exchange. And uh, since it's worth more to him to, to pay this, great. So, um, but then uh, as, things, uh, as things diminish, if there's less and less of it, that's why, the, uh, the, by the way, the, uh, the principle of scarcity is so vital. Because if there's less and less of it, the scarcity of resources then drives up the cost. It drives up the demand. You know, uh, people in Houston need more lumber or need more plywood. All right, and uh, it's worth a lot to them right now, and 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 uh, um, there's a there's a need there that we don't necessarily have in Austin or Jollyville or wherever. Okay, and that affects the the price, and it's supposed to affect the price. That's supposed to provide the incentive for a whole lot of people to take a whole lot of lumber and a whole lot of plywood down to where it's needed. Also removes it from here, where it's not needed as much. Okay. Anyway. By the way, this is not Bible, but if you want some fun uh, go to YouTube or Google and find Walter E. Williams on price gouging. Okay? Because He'll show economically why price gouging isn't price gouging and it's not the popular thing that politicians like to buy votes with. And it seems nice, like minimum wage, hey, I'm looking out for the little guy. But they don't understand why scarcity drives cost and the benefit of driving cost. And if you cap a price on something and say, no, you can't sell it for any more than what you were selling it for before, then you are just dampening all incentive, all motivation and who's going to bother loading up a, 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 a truck full of lumber and taking it where it's needed if he's not going to make money for it? It's not worth it to him. He'll just stay where he is and sell it for the same price. If if all he can get is this price here, well, I'll sell it in Jolly Vaught. I don't need to drive all the way down there. I'll sell it here for the same price anywhere. Okay? Understand? Anyway, if you don't understand, then uh, Walter Williams explains it better than I do. But um, Just a brilliant, brilliant economic mind. I've never been disappointed by any Walter E. Williams economic video. All right. Um, But scarcity, okay? And that's why for an infinite sacrifice, for an infinite price, it requires an infinite payment. And that's why the, uh, the, the death of Jesus Christ is infinitely valuable, infinitely worth the redemption of humanity, the redemption of all humanity in Adam. See? And that's the price that's paid. And that's the value that the Father placed on it because it's the Father who was satisfied by the blood of Christ. And uh, the, the satisfaction of the Father accepted the infinite cost of his Son. So um, we have that as well. All right. The last phrase then is dealing with the poor. The poor. And uh, this is the unsaved. He has no ears to hear. He does not listen to rebuke. He cannot listen to a rebuke. And uh, he's poor, uh, again, keeping it consistent with the wealth uh, being his redemption. Since he's not redeemed, he's not wealthy. He is poor, and he has no ears to hear. He cannot listen to a rebuke. And that's what we had back in verse 1, not listening to the rebuke from the Word of God. This is what we have throughout the Scriptures. The unbeliever cannot hear the Word of God. He can understand the English words. He can sit in this room as you sit in this room and you're hearing the word of God as it comes forth. The Holy Spirit communicates to your soul and they're listening, the unbelievers listening to the word of God hearing the same English words you're hearing and yet no living human spirit to receive the truth. No apprehension of the spiritual reality of what he's listening to. Whereas, of course, the believer does. We have the ears to hear. Matthew 11 and verse 15. There's more uh, he that has an ear to hear besides Revelation 2 and 3. Um, those are the easy ones to find because there's seven of them, one for each church. But uh, Jesus uses the expression in Matthew eleven fifteen, And this is before the day of Pentecost. This is Old Testament in uh, the stewardship of Israel. He uh in Matthew chapter 11 talking about John the Baptist. The um among those born of women there has arisen and there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Isn't that great? The greatest Old Testament believer ever. And yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The biggest church age loser you can point a finger at. Positionally, has greater reward, has greater inheritance, has greater uh, standing than the pinnacle of Old Testament um, spirituality. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Where's the kingdom now? (laughs) Not on this earth. Okay? It's been usurped. They crucified the king. And uh, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. There's a promise of the coming Elijah, but if you care to accept it, if you have the spiritual discernment to cycle the doctrine and relate the Old Testament promise to the New Testament reality, we have John the Baptist who functioned as the forerunner, as the herald in the first advent of Jesus Christ. He fulfilled that role. He, and if you care to accept it, he, he Himself is Elijah who was to come. And Jesus then says, He who has ears to hear will let him hear. It requires spiritual ears. You've got to be born again. You've got to have the spiritual ears. And you've got to volitionally hear. You've got to listen to what you're hearing. And I think a lot of people hear but don't listen. If you have children, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) If you have teenagers, you really know what I'm talking about. Okay? Or if you have a husband, a lot of you housewives know what I'm talking about. Your husband's hearing, but is he really listening? Oh. All right. So Jesus uses this. Same thing in Matthew 13, verses 9 and 43. Parable of the sower. And... um, Others fell on the good soil, yielded a crop, some 100 hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Why is that? Why do some bear more fruit than others? Why are some believers more productive than other believers? Because he who has ears, let him hear. And uh, some, uh, we all have ears, but not everyone hears. And not everyone uh, is motivated to get up and start serving and bearing fruit and being productive about it. Verse 43 of the same chapter. And here's the uh, gathering of the terrors to be thrown into the fire, which happens at the end of the age. This is the anti-rapture. Instead of being snatched up into heaven, these are the unbelievers that are snatched and thrown into hell. Because remember the millennial kingdom only begins with believers on this earth. And so the Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun, and the king uh, in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Okay, if you have an ear to hear, you better hear. The unsaved doesn't even have the ears to hear, and so they don't, and they can't. First Corinthians two, we use a lot. In fact, it's usually the first go-to passage for spiritual ears. Um because it contrasts the natural man with the spiritual man. And we have, we are spiritual. Okay? And don't confuse this. "...who among man knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him, even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God." which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but of those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. So God the Holy Spirit communicates to us, but only if we have a living human spirit. If we do not have a living human spirit, we cannot combine spiritual with spiritual. There's a spiritual transmission, but we don't have a spiritual reception without a living human spirit. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. It's like trying to receive an FM radio broadcast and all you've got is an AM radio. Alright? If, you if you're not spiritually alive, you've got a soul, but a dead human spirit. So all you get is the AM radio band. Okay? You don't get the FM radio band. Alright. But, the thing, but uh, he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. So this is what it comes down to. Is your human spirit made alive? Are you born again? If you have a living human spirit you can apprehend the Word of God. Is that clear? A lot of people teach this as if it's God the Holy Spirit. that you and I, we were in permanently indwelled by God the Holy Spirit and because we have God the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling us then we can understand doctrine. Well how did Old Testament believers understand doctrine? They didn't have the Holy Spirit. okay, But they had living human spirits. They could be spiritual as an Old Testament saint with a living human spirit. And that's where this passage is driving at. All right, And then finally seven times in Revelation 2 and 3, he that has an ear let him hear. And specifically in the church age, let him hear what the Holy Spirit communicates through the local churches. To the local churches. So Revelation 2, and, I'm out of time. but Revelation 2 and 3, you got the verses there. Uh, verse 7, 11, 17, and 29 all in chapter 2. Verses six, thirteen, and twenty-two in chapter three—you can find them yourself because it's the closing expression in each of those paragraphs to the uh, to the seven churches. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this truth. I thank you for um, the redemption of our soul, which we could not do ourselves. We couldn't buy ourselves, and yet you came and paid the price, Father, so that we can we can buy without money. We can buy without cost, and I thank you for that. I thank you for the. Price that was paid. I thank you for grace. Grace doesn't mean free. Grace uh, is uh, somebody else's expense. Uh, that, that there was a price to pay, and we're not paying it because someone did on our behalf. And I just thank you so much for it. And I pray that we might be reflective of grace, not making everything free, but bearing the cost to benefit others, Father, who, who can uh, be blessed. And so, Father, work in us to be expressions of grace, even as we are so wealthy as recipients of grace. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.